people just they, they don't feel uh, they don't feel like they're supported internally and externally and the money not all and I've heard this not all money's good money I don't need the extra four percent in pension when I can can do something else yeah and uh, that has to be not we have to acknowledge that we cannot hide from that and we have to talk about it and hopefully over time and action from the organization and leadership including myself people will feel like they're supported again and hopefully we can at least turn off that faucet of uh, attrition a little bit how can i help how can i be useful in ending needless suffering do not be afraid of work that has no end we have to organize a social movement. We have an opportunity to lead by example versus just talking, hot air. I think the more people in this fight, the more we grow. Eventually you could change. You know, the people are the ones that can make the change. Today's episode is a two-parter that's gonna cover a lot of ground. We're going to talk about the reality of policing with Captain Whiteman in the LAPD, the challenges that officers in the LAPD, but I think broadly law enforcement wide in the United States face, and how they are trying to change things. So a little bit of background on Captain Whiteman. He's been an LAPD officer since 1998. Now, in that time, some things have changed. Violent crime is, without a doubt, on the rise. Homicides in L.A. hit 397 in 2021, the most in more than a decade and a 50% increase from 2019. In 2022 alone, the Los Angeles Police Department reported 229,584 crimes, an 11.6% increase over the previous year. Last year in L.A., 30.1% of all robberies involved a firearm, up from 21.1% during the same or pre-pandemic year of 2019. Captain Whiteman has seen all of this firsthand. He's worked a variety of assignments, including patrol, special problem unit, or SPU, gang enforcement detail, GED, field training officer, and senior lead officer, SLO. In October of 2020, Ryan was promoted to captain and assigned to the West Los Angeles Patrol Division. In June of 2021, he was assigned to Community Safety Partnership Bureau, the CSPB works in the Watts Housing Project to sustain long-term community development and to maintain safe, thriving, and healthy communities. The CSPB program launched in 2011, and the goal of the CSPB program is to create more trust with officers through programs that help the community. Hope you enjoy part one of our conversation. How'd you find your way into policing? So I, uh, I've been with LAPD for 25 years. Uh, it's kind of unique. A lot of people say, oh, I always wanted to be a cop. I, uh, I'm from Western Mass, moved out here with my mom and dad when I was about uh, six years old. Uh, and my uncle, who's also from Western Mass, ended up out here. He's, he's uh, about 15 years older than me. And so I was about 20 years old. We really didn't have any direction, uh, kicking around jobs, making ends meet, and I went on a ride along with him. He was a LA County Sheriff uh, uh, down in South Los Angeles, and I decided that was where I wanted to go. And this was, I, was, I had just turned 21. 
Uh, so it took me uh, the process. I got hired, uh, you know, 18 months later, and uh, I fell into law enforcement career. That's uh, I have a, I have a career. I tell people, uh, especially the younger kids that that are just coming on, that may be disillusioned because of some of the the, the political narrative that's going on as it relates to law enforcement. For me, uh, I have a career that I never thought I would have. I've, I don't deserve a lot of the fortune I've gotten on LAPD, but I've worked with really good people that have uh, shepherded me through the, my, my 25 years, and it still continues to happen today. And uh, luckily for me, uh, uh, like I said before, my two brothers, I have a sergeant, uh, my older brother's a sergeant in the Foothill area in the Valley, and my younger brother, who was a Marine, uh, came out of the Marine Corps, and he's a training officer at Southwest Division down by USC. And uh, my my wife uh, just retired, retired as a detective. Oh, wow. So, so uh, LAPD in the city of Los Angeles, uh, although not perfect, they they have served me and my family well, and uh, I still come to work with a with with, with a desire to do the job and. Uh, I have way more good days than bad days, so that's what keeps me going. Do you make your brothers call you sir? No, 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 no. They're, uh, this is a missed opportunity. No, we no. should discuss this a little. You know, uh, <laughs> my older brother, uh, probably, uh, you know, uh, a far better uh, human being than me. He's like, a, he's a really good person. Uh, he, he's, he's doing really well. Uh, he came on later. Uh, but he has a tremendous upside, and my younger brother, uh, the service that he gave, uh, to, you know, during the conflict in Iraq and subsequently in Afghanistan, uh, and and what he's able to do, you know, with with, with the memories of that and how he transfers uh, his life of service beyond the military, uh, you know, they, they they are leaders in their own right, and uh, hopefully they continue to to grow and have opportunity with the department because they're, both of them are about eight to 10 years behind me. Uh, but they're, uh, they, 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 they're, they are grateful for the, the opportunity that the department's given them as well. Do you think the military service positions somebody well after leaving the military to go into law enforcement? I do. Uh, I came on at a time where military recruitment and military hirees were, were, uh, were I, I, more than they are today. I think uh, throughout the years, just looking at our uh, workforce, there has been a bit more emphasis put on uh, individuals coming out of educational institutions with degrees. I think that's uh, the landscape for many departments. Some departments require a bachelor's degree to get hired at entry-level position. LAPD, we're not there yet. Uh, we do still engage with uh, military installations locally and nationally for recruitment, and I think it's good. I think that variety of uh, experience, life experience, people from different regions of the country, uh, to be able to recruit them, train them, and then get them over here to, uh, within the city, uh, within the department, and try to develop them even more with their experiences, I think is important. Uh, also, you know, there's there's talk about should law enforcement be paramilitary organizations. That's where I was going. That's next. that's the word that we've used, and I, you know, we still lean on it. There there has to be uh, some of that, in my opinion, uh, just because we do have a rank structure 
things have to get done. You can't say no sometimes, right? <laughs> and, and there's many tactical uh, scenarios where uh, questioning direction is not is not tolerated because stuff has to get done for not only the protection and safety of the public, but for the protection and safety of, of your partners. So while uh, I know people, some, some people may say, okay, you're not paramilitary, but we have to uh, hold on to some of those values. Uh, LAPD, I think the misnomer uh, it, of us not adjusting and pivoting and changing with the times, I think that's uh, a narrative that's not true. In my 25 years, we have been uh, on the cusp of a lot of change, whether it's uh, transferring community policing into relationship-based policing, uh, really focusing on our people with de-escalation and critical incidents and training them and actually having a standard uh, that, that's not only written, but it's also applicable. We've done a very good job in the application of that and we continue uh, to advance in our de-escalation and uh, assessment of incidents so we can derive best, best practices from there and, and get better. Our training technology is something that when, when Chief Bratton came in after we got into the consent decree, he was a champion of securing funding for technology to enhance uh, delivery of police services and safety of community and officers. Uh, we continue to do that with, with Chief Mike Moore. Uh, so uh, LAPD is, 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 although we're not perfect, we are very uh, open to adjustments and change and feedback from not only the community and governmental partners, but also internally so, so we can be better. How's the retention been? You know, you have the class that comes in for people who are 10 months in. Right. In the, I call it the last five years, the modern era, where the real, the landscape, at least the lens on the law enforcement occupation has become very focused. Right. How has the retention of the senior officers been? So we, we do have people leaving a little bit earlier than... Uh, they probably would usually. My, my wife's one of them. Uh, she was uh, 25 years. She's 52 years old. Uh, she left three years early. I'll, I'll, she, she walked away three years early. Luckily, we're in, uh, we're in a situation where she could do so, and she takes care of, uh, you know, uh, my kids and, uh, and, and my stepson. Uh, as well as all the stuff that I don't want to take care of <laughs> that I'm probably not that good at. <laughs> uh, but we, we, we do see people uh, leaving earlier than, than we probably anticipated. Uh, people uh, getting to that 50-year mark where, where, where individuals can uh, actually draw their pension if they're 50 years old and have uh, over 20 years of service. We're seeing that. That's part of our attrition rate that I think uh, is, is, is hurting us with our, our numbers for field deployable uh, individuals. Uh, how, do, how do we engage with them and, 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 and make sure that they feel the worth to stay? That's a leadership issue in my opinion. So that comes down to lieutenants and captains talking to their people, making sure that uh, they understand where we're coming from even when we have to make decisions that may be adverse. Uh, far too long, you know, decisions were made and there's no explanation. We should be transparent with our cops just as equally as we are with the community. There has to be those levels of conversations. We have to, from a leadership position at least, even if we don't agree with it, a perceived opinion from an officer 
we have to acknowledge that at least and talk about it and see why and hopefully come up and have a conversation where they can understand, okay, I might not like it, but this is why this happened. Uh, there's a lot of missed opportunities there because of the, uh, the tempo of the work sometimes, but we, that's what we should be relying on our supervisors for, our sergeants and our lieutenants, and train them in, in that similar expectation so our people feel like they have a voice, so they feel like they, the, the work that they're doing has worth and if they have worth, they'll keep coming back and they won't leave and move to Tennessee and move to Idaho and move to Texas. Because that, that's, to be frank, that's, that's what we're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis is uh, people just, they, they, don't feel, uh, they don't feel like they're supported internally and externally. And, the mon not all, and I've heard this, not all money's good money. I don't need the extra 4% in pension when I can, can do something else. Yeah. And uh, that has to be, we have to acknowledge that. We cannot hide from that and we have to talk about it. And hopefully over time and action from the organization and leadership, including myself, people will feel like they're supported again and hopefully we can at least turn off that faucet of uh, attrition a little bit. Yeah, it's, people talk about uh, the special operations community and I can only talk about this in world, but there was a year where I think 301 people graduated BUDS, right. the pipeline, and 300 people got out. It's like, yay, we had a net gain of one. I was one. like, hold on a second though. Right. How many years of experience did we lose? So it's not a heartbeat for a heartbeat no. issue. <laughs> I mean, I guess, well, technically, if you're looking at it on an Excel spreadsheet, right. net gain of one, but we just lost 3,000 years right. of experience being replaced with people who have to now take that five to 10 years to get up to speed. Right. And we, we just went through that with our senior leadership. Uh, so I've been a captain going on three years. Uh, in the last three years, and we've lost and promoted over 40 captains. That's a lot, right? I don't think we've ever seen that, at least in my career. Again, we were losing very tenured folks, people with 30 plus years on the department. And the, you know, that, that, that trickle down impacts. Now we have uh, captains that were lieutenants making captain, younger sergeants making lieutenant, younger cops making sergeant. And that's something where we have to be very uh, aware of because we have to get these folks, we have, to, we have to invest in them to make them successful because they're gonna be the decision makers. Lieutenants, sergeants, and cops, that's our most important asset. They're making those critical decisions with, in, in, in very short time frames with very limited information. And without that training and exposure to critical incidents, uh, making decisions, having, having the knowledge base to do so, having mentorship to be able to be ready for that, we're, we're setting ourselves up for some, you know, for, again, we're outcome driven. We might not be getting the outcomes and then we wonder why, but we, 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 have, we have lost uh, tons of experience. And uh, I think uh, based upon uh, a lot of recommendations that were derived from uh, what we called the Safe LA protests, it was the, all the stuff related to uh, the Minneapolis incident. And you know, uh, a lot of the incidents for celebratory activities with, uh, with some of our sports teams, we've taken a lot of that uh, external evaluation and we're implementing things to, to help expand 
organizational knowledge and some things where we may have been too siloed and too uh, reliant on one or two individuals in upper level command and we're spreading that knowledge base out so we can absorb loss a little bit better. Yeah, succession planning. I think we're doing a lot better on that. How much has how much has the gang environment changed since you've been working here? Like, so I grew up in right. Santa Cruz, California. My exposure to the gangs, if I'm being totally honest, was like through Snoop Dogg and right. Ice T rap videos right. and music. No idea how bad, in relative terms, it ever was or where it's at now. But I feel like you probably had a pulse on as as it was navigating right. through. Right. Um, it's funny, I was just at a meeting with some community members for, for a mental health grant that we, we, we just uh, secured with our city attorney partners. And we were talking about this. And we were talking about like violence and what violence looks like today as compared to the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And uh, the, the gang operation has changed. You have African-American gangs that obviously operate and are held to a different accountability level than Hispanic gangs that align with Mexican mafia. So in East LA and, and, and some of South LA that uh, Hispanic gangs that, that are under, uh, you know, the, the, I don't say the control, but under that umbrella of Mexican mafia have different rules. The African-American gangs, which are uh, much higher by number, specifically crip sets, uh, outnumber blood sets, they are, there, there's, there's not as uh, a tight of an organizational uh, infrastructure, if you will. The, the days of, we'll have a shooting and a, and a, you know, suspected blood to get shot by a crip set, and then we'll have four or five shootings in a two day period volleying back and forth as retaliatory acts. That doesn't exist as much as it used to. I, I, it's been cut down dramatically because it's a moneymaker now. So they don't want to bring focus on some of their activities that are making them money. When I was a gang cop, the bread and butter was going and trying to identify people who are doing street sales of rock cocaine, PCP, methamphetamine at the time, and we would stop folks or observe hand-to-hand -hand transactions and uh, individual may have 50 to 100 rocks on them. That doesn't happen anymore. They're more driven by fraud, identity theft, human trafficking, specifically in South Los Angeles along the Figaro Corridor is, is something that is of, of uh, a very complex, challenging issue for not only police, but city government and then uh, a lot of different other agencies that we're working with to try to uh, off-ramp those individuals who are being victimized to be put out on the street. That's a moneymaker for them. Uh, big bulk drug sale, not street sales, but large bulk drug sales is big because it's less, uh, it's not as risky as standing on a corner for eight hours a day. It almost sounds like you're describing a shift from what could be considered blue collar crime to more of a white collar crime. In, in, so, in, in some cases it is. Uh, the, the fraud element of it is yeah, huge. It's certainly more complicated and, and, than strong arming yeah, somebody for rock right. cocaine. And, and, and the chances of getting caught are way less. And I think this comes through the evolution of technology in the last 15 years or so where people can get online and, and how, how savvy and, and, and educated people are on the utilization of technology to be able to commit crimes, if you will. So that's what we see as far, there, there, you know, there's not as much 
street level stuff that's that's visible if you will there is hanging out there are robberies uh you know we we struggled in the last couple of years with the follow home robberies i'm sure a lot of people have heard about the follow homes where so you know our, our mid wilshire area had a hard time with the hollywood area where people will will will, will profile a victim based upon a watch a car etc you know and they'll be followed home and once they get home the robbery occurs it could be you know uh, items are stolen whether just outside the house or inside the house uh, our robbery homicide division uh, did a great job uh, investigating and, and holding people accountable for these crimes but it was it was a it was a phenomenon uh, over the last three to four years that 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 really required a lot of police resources uh, it, it caused a lot of community anxiety in some neighborhoods uh, and in, in many cases it was driven by uh, identified documented gang members uh, for profit uh, burglaries high-end burglaries of, of, of residential communities uh, you know uh, gang members from different areas of the city going to uh, locations that, that, that may be seen by them as more affluent and uh, having uh, high-end burglaries fifty thousand hundred thousand dollars worth of merchandise jewelry money etc taken uh, you know that's less risk than selling guns in, yeah, <laughs> and, sure. and then and then maybe maybe selling a gun to an uh, you know uh you know uh informant or whatever so they 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 are doing some risk mitigation on, on what activities they're doing in my opinion and and really looking at what is the best um, for lack of a term criminal business plan that that that, that makes a, you know income driven but risk uh, mitigated. You know, you started in the late 80s and you said you spent a lot of time in, in the gang environment. Just from a numbers perspective, would you say there are more or less gang members from just an affiliation perspective now versus back then? So it's hard uh, because we've lost our ability uh, to... Uh, we, 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 California had Cal Gangs, so it was a gang uh, tracking system that was used by uh, law enforcement. Uh, we have lost our ability for that. There was uh, uh, some issues, uh, and, and, and we don't we don't use cow gangs anymore. Uh, that's that's above my pay grade. So uh, you know it, it is what it is. It was essentially a tracking tool. Yeah, it was like. a track. Yeah, for, for other departments to use, because gang members they they don't stay within criminals don't stay within the bounds of a, a geographical area. Like you're talking about like the sheriff's department and local PDs up there. Like gang members don't stop because, oh, I'm a gang member, a criminal in LA, I'm not going to Orange County. Crazy how that works, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so this was something <laughs> where, that was available to all agencies that participated where they could, you, you know, a lot of data was put in through field contact cards. Uh, so if you had a suspect described with a, with a 13 on their face, you could put that indicator in, and it would pop. It would populate how many people had that in the, in California, or specifically Southern California, and then that would give investigators a little bit more uh, narrow their scope to see if we could get some people identified. Very effective, very good uh, source of communication between agencies, and, and, and a lot of crimes were solved. We don't use that anymore. So now. Our numbers, I don't think, are, are very trackable, if you will. Uh, 
What would you say, just all, like from I, your I, own anecdotal perspective? I would say, I, you know, I, I think uh, affiliation is hard to gauge. Uh, say I, I'm a gang member, you're my brother, does that mean I'm a, you're an affiliate? I don't know. Uh, I, I, I would say it's probably about the same, I, I, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I don't have the number in LA County uh, exactly off the top of my head, uh, but there's not a lot of gangs that are dissolving. It's not like you say, oh, they used to exist, now they don't. Yeah. Uh, there has been, you know, specifically in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of task force driven stuff with, with federal, federal partners. Uh, that, that did have a great effect on communities taking uh, really violent people, gung toters, trigger pullers, individuals that were selling guns and drugs and, and, and really having some good outcomes on prosecution where 80% where time was done in federal prison system. Uh, that, that landscape's changed a little bit. Let's just be honest with, with the way uh, prosecutions and filings are going right now. Uh, I tell my guys and, 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 and women that work for me, don't worry about that. You just do your job because that is a, a morale suck on our department. Like we do all this work and then we don't, we don't get the outcome that, that we feel people are entitled to, and yeah. spe specifically our victims. If you're a victim, how do you feel? If you're a victim of a robbery, you identify a person, you participate in investigation, it goes to court and this individual gets convicted and gets probation or whatever it may be or doesn't get filed on and you're in that community and you see that person again every day. What is your level of faith, not only in the criminal justice system, but from a law enforcement perspective, we are the, we are the face of that whole system because we're the ones that they see every day. And are they gonna continue to participate with us? And we need community participation to be successful. So that, 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 that's a component I, that, that I think is uh, not talked about enough is that victim aftercare, victim advocacy. Uh, and again, because we have lower levels of staffing, are, are we able, are our detectives who are stretched very thin able to provide the level of service that we know the victims deserve? And we're, they're, they're, these cops, detectives, they are doing great work still today. But they're stretched. And at some point, you only can ask someone to work so many hours and, uh, in, in, until they're exhausted. I'm sure you know, that, that operational tempo is something that- It'll grind you to death. It'll grind you to death. And we have, in leadership positions, and our cops have to be honest with us too, they need to tell us when they're feeling like, okay, I need, I need a break whether it's a day, whether it's four hours in a day, and we have to find a way to accommodate that uh, because we should be protecting them from themselves in some cases, to, to be honest with you. You mentioned when you were talking about the CSP that it's a different approach right. to policing. Can you unpack what it is and how you got involved so, in that? So CSP, and uh, you know, around 2010, specifically in the housing developments in Watts, there's. There's three major housing developments, Nickerson Gardens, Imperial Courts, and Jordan Downs. Nickerson Gardens is the biggest uh, housing development uh, west of the Mississippi. It's about 1,300 units, plus or minus. Uh, and each of the housing developments has uh, been occupied by criminal street gangs 
probably since the late 70s. So Connie Rice, who was uh, is an attorney, uh, she was very frustrated with the housing authority of the city of Los Angeles and the conditions in which people were, were living and the housing developments, and she was very frustrated by policing practices in those areas of LAPD. She had sued the city a number of times on, on behalf of community members. And she came uh, to Charlie Beck, who was our chief at the time, and said, hey, things have to change, and this is what I think we should do. Uh, that was in collaboration with, uh, at the time, Captain Phil Tingarides, who retired LAPD about four or five years ago as a deputy chief. And my boss, Deputy Chief Amata Tingarides, they're married, uh, who at the time was a sergeant at Southeast. And that conversation birthed CSP. So uh, on the initial launch of CSP, 2010-2011, uh, uh, they opened up four sites. Boyle Heights, uh, East LA, uh, Ramona Gardens, which was uh, dominated by a big hazard criminal street gang, which is a Hispanic street gang with nexus to the beginnings of the Mexican Mafia and the California state prison system. Uh, Jordan Downs, Imperial Courts, and Nickerson Gardens. So we assigned a sergeant and 10 officers to each of those sites. And they're tiny. They're not, they're not big. Watts is, I believe, 2.2 uh, miles square. And the sites are smaller. Years of violence, years of murders. We're talking about drug sales, underreporting of violent crime, years of police going in only to uh, find themselves involved in application of force because the relationship was so bad, couldn't go into these areas with less than three or four patrol cars because it was unsafe. Cops go in to handle a call, they come back out, their car tires are cut. There was just a, it was, it was chaos. So they developed this and, it, and, and at that time, we had done a good job in LAPD with community policing where we'd go out and we would engage with the people who liked us. This is my opinion. We'd have a community meeting, it'd be 30 people that would say LAPD's doing the best job and we'd go out, <laughs> we'd, go, we'd leave that meeting, we're like, yeah, we're great. This was a transformation from community policing to one-off community events, like we give a turkey away so we feel good, like the LAPD, right? You know, we give a few presents away to relationship-based policing where we sit down with someone who may have had bad experience with police and have extended engagements and conversations about how to fix it and how, why LAPD did what they did to be part of the problem, perceived or real, and what that community member or that whoever, that individual, that, that community leader brought along, what they did to be part of the problem. And we have conversations about that. We, it's called truth and reconciliation. Some people hear that and they go, uh, sounds like too much of, a, of a, a, a soft title, but it's actually saying, hey, I know when I was a gang cop, my only mission was to arrest people. That, that's, I'm, I'm telling you, that was my mission. Like every day, I never thought about, hey, maybe I should go talk to these kids that I've just arrested five guys on the street corner. How do, you know, these kids watch every one of them. And then I wonder when I drive by why they flip me the bird and they're 12 years old, right? So those engagements with these folks early created an awareness of 
where we had gone wrong and where they had gone wrong and that both of us have to wear that responsibility. And then once that occurs, how do we create a path forward that's, that's uh, gonna, actually gonna have some action items that we can achieve so that we can feel that we're actually making some progress. So CSP, we, they did that. I wasn't assigned there yet. That was about two years before I got assigned there. But uh, Phil and Amada and Charlie Beck and the leadership in South Bureau at that time really engaged in some very difficult conversations with folks that had been, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, some of their communities had, had, had been terrorized by over-enforcement, perception, or real. Uh, sometimes, it, you know, it could be a little bit of both, right? Uh, is LAPD the only one that's identifying problems? And are we the only one that's writing the prescription for a solution? And that's where that over-enforcement comes in. And I talk about this with a lot of my community, is you tell me there's a problem, but you don't provide me how you want a community-led solution, and then when I apply a solution, you get frustrated with me. So there has to be that level of honesty. And then if something goes right, there has to be some mutual acknowledgement. And when something goes wrong, everyone has to stand shoulder to shoulder and say, yeah, we agreed to this. We thought this would be the best solution, but it didn't work. And then you move on. And we've achieved that. In CSP, uh, there's five core components. There's public safety, which cops sometimes have to do cop stuff but it's how we do it is what's important. Are we doing it constitutionally? Are we doing it with, with the, the, the most respect we can? Are we having debrief conversations with the community? Like when, 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 when we do things? Uh, and are our cops uh, relying on good judgment on spirit of the law, letter of the law? It doesn't always have to end in something that's seen as punitive to the community doesn't have to end in a ticket all the time. It could be an education. My mantra to our people is we uh, engage, educate, wash and repeat, wash and repeat, and if it's something that is a lower level crime and you have to take enforcement action, then we do it and we explain why we had to do it. Uh, there's cases where we can't do that. If someone's robbing someone, the expectation is we skip a few steps and we, we take constitutional action and then we explain. Uh, we have safe passages uh, where we, are, we bring in officers to work with the schools and the parents to make sure the kids are getting to school safe, unmolested by uh, uh, unhoused Angelinos, gang members that may be trying to recruit them. Uh, one of the biggest things we hear and see is uh, it takes all my energy as a third grader to get to school and then the teachers want me to sit in class and learn how to do algebra. In my experience, I've never, I, I, I would never have thought that way because I never grew up in that environment. So that's, that's an important perspective from a 12-year-old kid to a 30-year-old police officer in some cases and how we, how we engage with them. We do sports programming. We have a, a stable of partners. Uh, where we have football with the, with the Rams. We have uh, uh, about 150 kids right now engaged in watch Rams football, which, which the Los Angeles Rams have been steadfast partners of ours. We have soccer programs. We have baseball. We have basketball. We have, we have 
if, if you have a kid and you want them in a program, we, we, we will find you one and, and it will not cost you anything. Uh, and then we have parent support for that as well. Uh, so we have a broad uh, non-enforcement related uh, uh, structure that really helps us with winning the respect and trust of the community. One of the things that, that we're constantly doing and is one of our core components is building community capacity. To have folks that have felt like they were not heard from not only the police department but city government and they don't have the ability to solve problems through those lanes, we help them uh, connect and educate themselves on, on how they, what is the council district responsible for? What is the mayor's office responsible for? If, you know, dispute resolution, like we, we see a lot of that. How, how can you get dispute resolution services so you don't have to call the police and have a negative interaction with the police? Everyone has to carry their own water. Uh, and we're trying to build uh, an approach that's uh, for public safety and a public health approach that is community-led and law enforcement supported. It would be great if we didn't need as many cops. Right, that's not gonna happen in my generation, but what we can do is use the cops that we have better and develop our community members to be able to, to, to have the confidence to lead within their neighborhoods to minimize the need for cops in activities that may make them feel over-policed, if that makes sense. It does. To learn more about the LAPD's Community Safety Partnership Bureau and the organizations that they are involved with, please check out lapdcsp.org. That is lapdcsp.org.